0: Welcome to the Vodpod. It's just, it's just Welcome to. I think we're on episode nine of the Vodpod, uh, the podcast so dedicated to films and TV on streaming that. I barely get to the cinema anymore. Every week I'm joined by a guest. Oh, I'm Nathaniel Smith, by the way, but I'm guessing if you've listened this far, you know who I am. Um, and this week I'm joined by a really exciting guest. He is a friend of mine that lives in uh, Edinburgh. He is also a BBC critic. He
1: has written for... Who have you written for? Oh, uh, it's going back a wee bit. STV, did a bit for them. Real Scotland is where I started out my writing career. Big up John Melville.
0: John Melville, the guy to go to for obscure British TV from the past. Um, Anyway, you've heard him already, it's Ross McLean. Ross,
1: welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Nathaniel. It's a pleasure to
0: be here. And uh, we start, as always, with uh, The Hidden Gem. This one's not so obvious. The Hidden Gem. Now, in this part of the show, I ask my guests to recommend something to me uh, hidden deep on a streaming service, something that you might like to watch as a listener, uh, or probably something that I haven't seen as well, because I generally tend to invite on people who are far more well-watched than I am. And Ross really does have a taste for the obscure. So what what are you recommending
1: today? Well, Nathaniel has a preconception of me as being somewhat of a contrarian. And I don't see myself as a contrarian. I uh, think that I just like to give films... A chance. And that would be my defense. <laughs> but the film that I'm going to recommend is one that I'm pretty certain Nathaniel won't have seen. But it's one that ties into the current Vogue for all things New Zealand. You've got Flight of the Concords back on tour. You've got The Man of the Moment, Taika Waititi everywhere. You've got uh, you've got yeah, you've got your Thor Ragnarok, you've got his Hunt for the Wilder People, you've got all these films. So I'm gonna pick another New Zealand comedy. It's one from 2014 and it's one that's undeservedly obscure because it didn't get a cinema release in the UK. But it's a film called Housebound and it's a comedy horror film and it's just really very, very good. It's uh, nicely judged and nicely balanced and it recalls the early films of Peter Jackson. So your bad tastes, your brain deads it's maybe not quite as on the gory side as that. It's maybe more creepy than gory, but it's got that really dry sense of humour that New Zealand has kind of more recently become renowned for.
0: Okay, so um, who is the talent behind this film? Because you're right,
1: I've not seen it. I have not even heard of it. So, Well, it's a, a guy called Gerard Johnson. He's not done a great deal. Uh, certainly not a great deal that's well known, but... Um, I think his his background is is in kind of New Zealand comedies. Who you might know in it, uh, the one of the lead actors in it is Rima Weati, if that pronunciation <laughs> is right. Who you will probably best know as the uh, the foster mother in uh, Hunt for the Wilderpeople, Ricky Baker's foster mother. Uh, she plays the mother of the lead character in this film. And one of the greatest things I think about this film is that it's it's a horror film, it's a comedy horror with a female lead. And not only that, but just a really well-developed female lead character with an arc, with a story, with a a real sense of character just coming through uh, throughout the entire film. And the lead actress is a young actress called Morgana O'Reilly. and She plays a young offender who is sentenced and told uh, as part of her bail conditions. Uh, to return to her home where she is as the title would suggest
0: housebound you say it's a horror slash comedy most things that try to tread that line will end up leaning one way or the other so like what we do in the shadows it's definitely more of a a comedy than a horror it just Mm. has bits of gore that kind of thing which which way does this lean or or does it somehow manage to do both
1: well this is what what we do in the shadows is quite an interesting comparison because this came out relatively close to what we do in the shadows and for my money, is a more successful film. While I liked What We Do in the Shadows, I thought, as as you suggested there, Nathaniel, I, I think it didn't quite get the balance of tone right for me. I think it was more episodic. It was a nice little series of sketches, but it didn't really hold together as a film for me. This, I think, does. this. The focus on this is on plot. It's, it's on not gore, although there are some kind of slightly... Uh, fist clenched the kind of teeth grinding moments of gore, but it's it's all played for laughs. And I'd say it comes down on the side of mystery, almost like a mystery horror. But there is just this underlying layer of comedy. And if you're a fan of New Zealand comedy, uh, like the stuff of uh, Taika Waititi, then I think you will appreciate the kind of the dryness of the humor. It's all, it's the, it's not jokes as such. It's almost a lot of it comes through in the delivery. So I'm just looking at um,
0: uh, Gerard Johnson now. He's not directing much since. He's done some episodes of a news, of a TV series called Terry Teo and is uh, directing some episodes of the reboot they're doing of The Legend of Monkey. Is a lot of why this is successful
1: down to him, do you think? Does he have a future in this kind of thing? I'm, I'm amazed he's not done more and he's not moved on to bigger things because this film, for me, is a real calling card for it. I think it's it's visually really interesting. It's got a really nice aesthetic. the uh, The location's really nice. It's it's all it's a creepy kind of haunted house film, and the location, but in a kind of suburban, nondescript location, and it just it works really well. But then, as the film goes on, it it starts to develop kind of weirder, quirkier elements, and the without going into too much detail about it, the the kind of reveal of what is going on is visually just very interesting and quite kinetic and there's some really kind of quite tense moments and tense action scenes towards the end so I think um, yeah Gerard Johnson's got a big part to play in it um, I mean he's the writer and director um, so I would I would certainly have expected him to move on to not, not least out with New Zealand and onto a kind of world stage but but on bigger and better things it, it, it sounds great where would a UK viewer find it? Well it's on Netflix that's where I saw it um, as I said I mean unfortunately didn't get any kind of cinema release over here outside of potentially maybe horror film festivals I would imagine is, is where it might have found a, a few screenings but yeah nothing over here I think uh, yeah it's on Netflix I think it might have a DVD release but it certainly didn't get a Blu-ray release over here
0: Okay, so that's um, housebound, uh, and very much a, a hidden gem in the truest sense of that term. Um, in return, I'd, I'd like to recommend a film that's also about someone who's housebound uh, by an evil stepmother who wants to keep her, uh, you know, working in the house when they an... go out to a party.
1: This is intriguing. What is it? Nathan? Well, it's
0: actually uh, the live-action update of Cinderella, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Uh. He of Murder on the Orient Express fame that's an
1: interesting choice
0: that's that's how little i've been to the cinema recently i haven't even seen the director of cinderella's latest opus
1: well i mean as you see, you you've uh, pigeonholed me as someone who revels in contrarianism and you've found one of the few people i think who actually also quite like that cinderella film uh, oh so... there you go
0: listeners i'm not the only one so that's housebound which is on netflix right now and um sounds like it could be very popular given the
1: yeah i mean there's a few people i've seen a few people saying they've watched it and enjoyed it on social media so it's certainly one that seems to be gathering pace
0: excellent um
1: and now we move on
0: to the big release <laughs> this week's big release is um is yet another property uh, delivered by Marvel to Netflix. Uh, although this time it comes with a bit of a delay after it was um, delayed in the wake of the Las Vegas shooting. They decided to hold it back a bit. Um, it's The Punisher. It's the spin-off that originally wasn't going to happen because uh, they had just had the Four Defenders series scheduled. But John Bernthal was so popular as a character in Daredevil season 2 that they gave him his own spin-off series. Here it is now. Ross is a comic book fan, uh, a fan of most of Marvel's Netflix stuff so far and someone that has read the Punisher series, well, or Bits various iterations. Um what do you think of it? You've seen it all, I believe. I have seen it all, yes.
1: Um yeah. I think if you're in if you're digging the vibe of the Marvel Netflix series so far it's very much more of the same I think it maybe is a bit harder edged than the rest of them but I think it's it's one that I think you, you will enjoy, I'm not sure how much you will get from it coming to it completely cold if you're not well versed in the, the rest of the Netflix series or that kind of particular attempt at a kind of grittier style than the rest of the Marvel cinematic stuff Uh, I'm not sure how much you'll get to it if you've not got a kind of grounding in those. Yeah, I I have a fondness for the Marvel series, uh, particularly Daredevil. I mean, Nathaniel said that I've read a lot of the Punisher. I've not really read a lot of the Punisher. A lot of my knowledge of the Punisher comes from his interactions with other Marvel Universe characters. So, I mean, for example, he's cropped up in Daredevil comics quite a lot, um, as he has indeed in the TV series. I mean, that's that's where he was introduced. Um, This series i think has an expectation that you've watched season two of daredevil um a lot of the introductory stuff to the character is all taken care of there so f- i would very much proceed with caution if you've not seen daredevil season two
0: yeah i mean so i i've been watching the punisher as well i'm uh, over halfway through it now uh and i won't lie i'm, I'm struggling a bit i think um marvel have attempted to kind of go the prestige TV route with a lot of these things. And they've sort of interpreted that to mean having sprawling ensemble casts, 13 episodes, a series and, uh, starting it majorly slowly. And I found the same problem with the defenders that it was incredibly slow burn to start off mm-hmm. with. But the problem is the thing that it's building to that I'm finding just isn't compelling enough. There's sort of a, uh, Uh, conspiracy theory type thing going on that, to me, is very generic. And um, I don't think The Punisher is quite as successful as a lead character as he was as a supporting character. I thought he was very effective in Daredevil Season 2, sort of popping up as an agent of chaos and, um, you know, counteracting uh, Matt Murdock's philosophy. But here I just find he... While the performance by John Bernthal is excellent, and I'm sure we'll talk about mm. that a bit more, I think the character itself just isn't quite strong enough to hold the rest of it, so they, they pad it out with a lot of stuff that I just think mm-hmm. isn't quite compelling. And I, I just wonder if a tighter edit and maybe four fewer episodes would just make this a much more engaging television series.
1: While well, I do agree with some of what you're saying there, I think for me, I thought The Punisher actually had done quite a lot to strip down a lot of the flab that's been in some of the other series. I think for me this had a, a far more controlled cast. The, you have a central character and you have very few kind of peripheral side characters, which has been part of the problem with the other series. Um, I, Yeah, I thought they had done a lot to strip it down here. I would agree that certainly I think, as is the problem with, with most of the Marvel Netflix series, is that the series order of of 13 hour long episodes or kind of just knocking on an hour long episodes is, is a bit long. Um. But I think, I think he is a compelling central character. I think while I don't think there's particularly any great level of depth to this study of the character, I do think there's always something in the idea of a vigilante character and the kind of, the moral shades of grey they operate in. Uh, and, I mean, of course, The the Punisher is coming from... I mean, his character was created in the 70s. It's coming from this era of films like Death Wish and, and things like that. And I think they've done quite a lot to try to flesh it out a bit more than previous iterations have.
0: Yeah, I, I guess I'm thinking of... Um, the. There's a subplot involving veterans, which is sort of their theme for this series if, mm. I guess, Luke Cage was about, um, I guess, race in America and Jessica Jones was about misogyny. The, this one is kind of about veterans and trauma and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm, I'm not finding that that is, is gelling quite so well with the, the main thread at the moment. And you also have the incredibly limp Karen Page turning up again that just seems to she is in
1: very little of it she was kind of she was advertised as the kind of connective tissue that was connecting this to the rest of the the already established marvel shows but she really doesn't have a great deal to do here at all Mm. um
0: i i'm wondering is do you have an idea as to why um netflix's marvel series are so reluctant to have characters in costume because they're almost trolling us with this one so at the end of daredevils season two and this is a spoiler for that um the punisher turns up in his full garb having Mm. fully committed to the look that we know from the comics the skull on his chest plate and that kind of thing and you think okay the character has now arrived then i i genuinely think it's the first five minutes of this where he dispatches with the rest of the characters from uh, that he was talking about at the end of season two of Daredevil, and then burns his Punisher outfit, and it's just, and then it's just like, then he just goes back to being a vigilante who is still pursuing the threads of that story. But it, it definitely, you think that it's going to lead directly on from season two of Daredevil, but it does get rid of that very quickly. And it's if he does become the Punisher later in the series, and we won't spoil that for you. Um, partly because I'm not there yet it's taking a long time and what do you know why they're so reluctant to have people in costume because they never put Luke Cage in a costume or Iron mm. Fist
1: I? well I mean one, was, funnily enough one of the things I wrote down as I was making my notes as I viewed this one of the things I noted was wow they've just gone with the iconography straight away this is great <laughs> uh, and yeah as Nathaniel says they've gone with it straight away and then completely abandoned it Uh I mean it does come back I think uh, you're talking quite late in the series, maybe episode 8 or 9 it comes back um, but yeah it's, it's, a, it's an issue I've had with Marvel both on television and in the cinema uh, I mean for example Captain America, they can't wait for a moment for Captain America to take off his helmet and just have Chris Evans's pretty face plastered across the screen and in the TV series yeah Daredevil gets his costume, but even in series two, even by series two, and also by the uh, in the Defenders, so little of the time is spent with them in costume. I think they're almost they seem ashamed that they've they're going for this grounded aesthetic and this grounded idea of kind of prestige television, which is adapted from what they're describing in the comic books. There's there's almost kind of various layers in the Marvel universe. There's your, your there's your cosmic stuff. There's your big-ticket superheroes, your Iron Mans, your Thors, and then there's what they call their street-level heroes, which is the characters they built up through these shows and also other characters like Ghost Rider and and slightly kind of harder-edged characters. But, yeah, they seem almost embarrassed about the fact that these characters wear costumes. And although this is something they're doing in the comics as well, they've moved towards having these characters out of costume in the comics as well. I mean, Luke Cage, since really the 70s, he's been... Uh, out of his costume. He was established in the 70s with a costume and he's he's not really worn it very much recently. Jessica Jones, the whole central tenet of her character is how she has shirked the the responsibilities of a, a costume superhero. Iron Fist, they've just not even addressed it. just no no addressing of the fact that uh, Iron Fist has a costume in the comics. They've just decided it obviously looks too silly to translate it at to screen. But yeah, The Punisher seems to carry on that tradition. Most of the series is spent with them in I guess army-tinged civilian gear, but yeah, um, yeah not a great deal of big white skulls. Um, one of
0: the things I am enjoying about it, because I'm pretty conflicted about the series, but it, they seem to have assembled one of their best casts for it, and I think they're, they're pretty uniformly impressive. Uh, so John Bernthal, I think, is is just terrific in the role. Like you cannot tear your eyes off him, but I've also been impressed by um, Amber Rose Raver. I think she's called, who's yeah, playing yeah. the, um, the Homeland security yeah, investigator, yeah, investigator that's yeah. looking into uh, the Punisher and his backstory. Um, and you've got this guy, um, micro who is presumably a comic book character that they've,
1: yeah, there's a character called microchip in the comics. Who's kind of one of the, the side characters in the Punisher and they've kind of Adapted and updated him a little bit, um and you've got Ben Barnes. Who oh yeah, of course. You've, you've not seen him like a lot of stuff recently, but he was almost kind of touted as the next big thing and kind of young British actors of maybe ten years ago. Was it Prince back, Caspian? He was? Back in the days of Prince Caspian and Dorian Gray. Yeah, um so it's nice to see him back. And if you are familiar with the comics at all and you see his character as Billy Russo, then you'll have an idea where they're going with his character. Um, and the show certainly hints towards that quite a lot. There are a lot of references to his uh, prettiness. And in fact, an episode opens with his morning beauty regime. So yeah, I mean, Billy Russo is a character, so you, you know who he is from the comics, if you're familiar with those. But the show keeps his, uh, keeps his arc quite close to its chest until the, the series... Progresses, um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot um, there's a lot of great things in the cast. Uh, I mean, as Nathaniel said, John Bernthal, who to to my mind is having an absolutely stellar the year this year. Not only is he taking the lead in this, and he's absolutely compelling uh, in the kind of few scenes he was in in Baby Driver, very very compelling, and two lesser seen films which I, I saw at film festivals this year uh there's one called Pilgrimage which he did where he plays a mute kind of uh a mute fighter in medieval Ireland <laughs> uh which I which is a film he's in with Tom Holland which I, ironically was the film that it was on the set of that that both John Bernthal and Tom Holland both auditioned for their Marvel roles from <laughs> that set so he's great in that and there's a film called Sweet Virginia which is out quite soon I think but I saw that at the Edinburgh Film Festival and John Bernthal in that is just absolutely phenomenal, just fantastic.
0: And I think we should probably also address the fact that it it was delayed because um, because of this, the Las Vegas shooting and you've got to wonder why and it, presumably it's because this is a very gun heavy show and there's a lot of guns in it and then you almost wonder like would it keep delaying forever because this comes in the wake of you know another fairly recent shooting in the states and well and and i've got to say i just feel very conflicted about it because it's it's a little bit queasy so you have the the opening credits Mm. are lots of slow-mo uh shots of guns like firing and then all the yeah. guns a lot of gun iconography thing. in the, yeah. The credits, and yeah and there is a whole lot of shooting in this and heads explode and chests explode and that kind of thing and i get it that's the that's the character and i also think that marvel is slightly aware of not wanting to fully fetishize guns i don't think that's what it's doing i'm not about to say ban this sick filth but i i feel like it tries to address it and I don't think it's wholly successful, and I think some of the imagery in it is perhaps still irresponsible in in the modern world we live in. I just think it's it's such a a gun heavy show and um although uh Frank Castle is an anti hero in you know the traditional sense of that term um you're pretty much always on his side. The show isn't that ambiguous about him, really.
1: No, I mean, it's, it's quite clear-cut from the start that that he is with whom our sympathies lie. Um, I mean, you're you're right. I mean, there is um, the the iconography of those opening credits. It'd be hard to do a Punisher show without that iconography. But yeah, I mean, it is right up front there in your face. And yeah, as Nathaniel says, this this release was rejigged in light of the Las Vegas shooting. But sadly, we live in a world where you can never create enough distance from a mass shooting. Um, that, yeah, the 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 risk is that this would sit on the shelf forever if they they tried to create a sufficient distance, and there's never going to be and in the current time a, the right time to put out a show, which is so predicated on vigilante violence and kind of lone men stalking corridors with guns Uh, and yeah it it is I see where Nathaniel's coming from it is queasy imagery in these times and I think part of the the thing is that I watching this confronted me with the fact how much I enjoy watching violence on screen though I find it thrilling to watch and it's not an easy thing to see really or even to kind of think about why but I, th- I suppose it comes into the fact that I would rather see these things depicted fictionally than, than in real life. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, I I enjoyed the action scenes in the show. I thought they were. They are brutal. well executed. Yeah, they were well good pun there. <laughs> pun the Punisher indeed. Right. um Yeah. I I they were very well executed. They were really well staged. But yeah, the, 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 there's no getting around the fact there is a lot of violence in it, and. Yeah, I mean, it's going to depend on your tolerance for that kind of imagery, how much you're going to respond to this show.
0: I mean, do you think it's trying to address it? Do you think it's trying to say something about gun violence? Are we meant to be ambivalent about the depiction of it? Uh, Because it's kind of dropping hints of those themes. And Mm. uh, there's, there's a thread following a disgruntled veteran that is almost trying to get under the skin of someone that might become a mass shooter. Um and so it, it seems as though it's trying to wrestle with these issues, but also whilst wanting you to be thrilled by the violence, do you think it manages to do that? Do you think it addresses
1: the problems? Well I think as you described there, I think it wants to have its cake and eat it. It wants to have all this imagery but also make a kind of piecemeal attempt addressing it and contextualising it I'm not sure it is entirely successful in that I certainly don't think that there's any particularly thoughtful examination of it in the show I think it is just it's entertainment and they've they've addressed the context that this show is going to go out into the world in but they've not done really any more than that other than just uh, referencing it I mean I think the idea of uh, this subplot about veterans and veterans' rights, and the fact I think there's there's a phrase that's used about Frank earlier on in the series that uh, sorry later on in the series that uh, the the war is still going on inside his head that kind of idea you have nothing but a war inside you I think is the phrase that's used but this idea of soldiers returning from war and being unable to kind of shake their actions from that conflict. That, that's all there and it's all bubbling under um, but the the show is much more focused on what I would describe as I suppose a kind of post-born conspiracy about uh, black ops and uh, kind of shadowy cabals controlling soldiers and things like that the comics and earlier iterations of The Punisher, so the 1989 film which is a kind of response to big 80s action films and then the, the 2004 film and uh, the Punisher Warzone from 2008. They all dealt with Frank Castle taking on crime syndicates really. For the most part it was the Punisher versus a crime syndicate and this film, uh, sorry, this series has has avoided that and has almost gone, gone down the angle of the Punisher taking on Government corruption, I suppose you'd you'd uh term it. And I suppose that is its kind of it's one attempt to to address these kind of bigger themes.
0: Yeah. I mean I guess um you know whether you're gonna watch a, a show called The Punisher that's all about guns and that kind of thing. Like you you'll approach this open eyed, but it is uh, kind of extraordinarily violent in places i think it'll probably be an 18 when it's released yeah um, and, it, and it
1: only gets more violent as it goes on as well um
0: uh and and finally i guess just uh, one last thing i i feel it's worth pointing out is one thing i've been impressed with, with the marvel series um in spite of what many people consider to be a gaffe with iron fist they are quite effortlessly diverse these shows they they seem mm. to have um made a conscious decision to not just populate these shows with white men and um, yep. and, and I think the, the Punisher continues that really well It has a, a diverse You know, cast With um, interesting Characters across the spectrum um, And I just think We're so quick to criticise Things that aren't And rightly so, that I think when A show's doing it right, it's probably worth Pointing out and celebrating for that
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the this has Not only an ethnically And gender diverse cast For the most part um, it also has a lot of good meaty roles for older actors as well uh, kind of character actor faces from the past there's there's a nice role for uh, Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio who I've not heard of for years she was in uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves and uh, The Abyss and yeah there's a nice little role for her there and Clancy Brown from Highlander and um, Nathaniel will probably know him as uh, the voice of Mr. Krabs from SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> um but yeah he's he's not wrong (laughs) he's not wrong (laughs) i i I know uh i know exactly where to go with these things (laughs) um but yeah it's it is a show that i did enjoy and as i said i found myself kind of questioning my enjoyment of the violence but still enjoying
0: it um uh, which is... I think that's a, an okay thing to admit. I mean, violence has been a part
1: of cinema and TV for pretty much as long as the mediums existed. So. Yeah, and, and I mean, one of the things I wanted to mention was the music in the show. Um, I mean, one of the early episodes, I think it's episode one actually, ends with uh, quite a violent scene with a sledgehammer, which I kind of thought of throughout the first episode, you see uh, Frank Castle in his kind of assumed identity working on a building site using a sledgehammer. And I kind of thought of it as Chekhov's sledgehammer. If you're going to establish a sledgehammer in an episode of The Punisher, now I want to see that used by the episode's end to crunch some bones. And without giving too much away, it is in episode one, but yeah, it it does come into effect. And yeah, it scores that with a a Tom Waits song, Hell Broke Loose. So it's it's, it's my kind of show. You've got Luke Cage, which did a lot for uh, establishing a kind of urban hip-hop soundtrack. This is very much uh, Tom Waits. At one point, uh, Frank Castle gets Bruce Springsteen tickets. Like, this is the angle they're going for with The Punisher.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think that's a recommendation from you. Yeah, and with with reservations. Yeah, so. and, and I think um, I'm probably coming at it as someone that hasn't been as invested in these shows and so hasn't responded to it as well. So I think... That should probably guide you as to whether you're going to enjoy The Punisher or not. It depends how much you're already uh, involved with Marvel's television universe. Um, but that's coming out this Friday, which is the 17th of November, on Netflix. And now we move on to The Double Bill.
1: When one ain't enough, enough for you You know what you gotta do Just take two With a double bill
0: In this part of the show... We normally would recommend a double bill with something that is currently on wide release in cinemas. But this week, we're going to do something slightly different. We're going to recommend a double bill with a major streaming release that's coming out um, because this is one of Netflix's biggest release of the year. It's Mudbound. And um, uh, this was picked up at the Sundance Film Festival for quite a lot of money. It's directed by D. Reese, and it's, it's gonna be turning up on streaming this Friday as well. It will also be released in Curzon cinemas around the country. So if you want to see it on the big screen, and Ross will soon tell you whether that's a good idea or not, you can catch it at a Curzon cinema. But this is a, a streaming release, so we thought we would stay on brand. Um, Mudbound is out this Friday. Before we go into Double Bills, Ross, you've actually seen Mudbound, haven't you? I did. I watched it last night. And um, what do you think of it? It's got good reviews so far. Are you chiming with them? I'm
1: certainly going to chime in with the good reviews. Um, it's a really, really rich piece of storytelling it's an ensemble drama set in in and around uh, and post World War 2 in Mississippi it's got about 6 lead characters uh, one black family and one white family and it is dealing with a lot of things it's dealing with uh, the general race situation in America at the time and certainly in the the Deep South it's dealing with uh, post-traumatic stress and of the the idea of soldiers returning from war and not knowing what they're returning home to and not finding a place upon their return it's dealing with the subjugation of women it's dealing with so many things it's got so much going on and it's two hours 14 minutes but it's a really really assured piece of filmmaking
0: yeah i think um Netflix picked this up with the hope because Netflix have got the Oscar thirst pretty seriously and so far they've mostly managed to break in with their documentaries but I think they're still pushing for awards recognition with their big dramas after the Beast of No Nation gambit flopped a few mm-hmm. years back before Netflix had I think properly broken into the market and I think they probably have awards hopes for, for Mudbound and um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it and with a perhaps a uh, an incredibly changed voter base. Uh,
1: this perhaps has a chance. I think this year more than any year, I think with everything that's going on in Hollywood at the moment, uh, I think this combined with Moonlight's success last year, I think is is going to be the year this is going to do well, if if any year. Um, I would hope that this certainly sees some awards recognition. Uh, I've not seen any of uh, Dee Reese's uh, the director's other films, um but on the basis of this I was hugely impressed with what she's done here. It's one of these films that as you're watching it it's just very apparent that it's based on a novel it's got a kind of very novelistic feel, it's got um, multiple perspectives it's got multiple themes and it's the kind of thing that I would like to see get some recognition not only for that but just because of how how deft it is with dealing with these, these things with a degree of nuance and without any of the grandstanding that the other films might have dealing uh, with a similar subject.
0: So it has, uh, Rachel Morrison as its cinematographer who has previously shot things like dope and she's going on to shoot uh, black Panther, um, which is quite a big step up for her. Um, I'm quite excited about that film, even though I don't like Marvel, but I think it, it, it looks like it should be a lot of fun. Um, is this something for people that live near Curzon Cinemas that you think would hold up to the big screen?
1: I think, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the cinematography is, is lovely. and it, Yeah, I mean, the, the look of it kind of recalls some of these big 70s epic films like Heaven's Gate. And um, it's it's got this really kind of beautiful treatment of the landscape. And not only that, but the, it doesn't overplay that. It doesn't really kind of... It's not a film about landscape. It's a film about people... But there's there's some really nice action scenes in it. There's some really nice kind of scenes in torrential rain and, and literally kind of characters being mudbound. And yeah, I think it, it is quite a nice film to look at. I mean, I saw it obviously on a screener at home, but it's one that I certainly wish I'd maybe seen on a big screen if the possibility was there.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, I, um, I'm really looking forward to catching up with this. Um, as I say, it's out on Friday on... On Netflix the seventeenth of November. But um I was reading a review of it that inspired my pick for a double bill, which is To Kill a Mockingbird. Um obviously a classic. I think it's the kind of film that turns mm-hmm. up in AFI, best American films ever lists, Atticus I, Finch is one of the
1: the greatest characters in film, that kind of thing. I, I think it's a film you could probably if you wanted a, if quality was the the attribute of the double bill as a film you could double bill with just about anything.
0: Yeah, um it's 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 obviously a terrific film but the, the, the reason I think it would make a, an interesting double bill with mudbound from what I've read about it is that um Atticus Finch is obviously cinema and literature's kind of one of the most sympathetic white guys in terms of plots about race and um it, there's almost been a, an alleviation of guilt for a lot of people thinking, well I'm more of an Atticus Finch than uh you know just you bog standard racist. Which is why I thought Ghost Setter Watchmen was such a fascinating book to slightly uh, disassemble that. Um, but what I read about Mudbound, and I don't know whether you would agree with this assessment, is that it, it doesn't give you easy sympathy for its white characters. It's a much more realistic depiction of what white people in the South would be like from around this era. And I think they must be similar
1: eras that they're set. Yeah, this is set in the yeah the the forties, so yeah, immediately kind of the majority of it's kind of post World War Two. Um, yeah, I mean the the characters in this, particularly the white characters, they're not acting with ill intentions, but they're unaware of the their privilege and the repercussions that their actions can have, and it's it's quite a kind of fair, balanced look at race relations.
0: Yeah, I I think. Um... I think it's race is something that I guess is just increasingly going to figure in cinema as you know we have uh, nationalistic marches around the world and that kind of thing and something that you know uh, everybody's going to have to reckon with uh, with the, the film watching and that kind of thing and I just think I mean *To Kill a Mockingbird* is a great film I'm not criticising in any way but I just think it would make an interesting counterpoint to see I guess how depictions of uh, whiteness in the south of America has has changed over the generations and um, it gives you an excuse to watch Kill a Mockingbird again but taking these two perspectives
1: of the same era I think can make for a really fascinating double bill well yeah I mean one of the things that that kind of really struck me was when you think about the deep south and you, you think about these kind of films like there's there's almost certainly in my mind this idea that they took place much longer ago than they did and in this, I mean, you you watch a character who's kind of who's gone off to war, a, a young black character who's gone off to war and fought in World War Two, and returns home, and he returns home to the same prejudice and the same, uh, the same situation that he left, despite the fact in World War Two, his experiences were were much more positive, despite the obviously absolutely horrendous circumstances uh, that they brought themselves. So yeah, I mean, I think it's it's fascinating to me that that this was an era that's within my parents lifetime uh just about um and yeah it is yeah a really kind of grim idea that that a country will send young black men to fight for them but then castigate them on their return
0: yeah and i'm i'm kind of intrigued by um by your choice of a, a double bill for Mudbound um, because it, it wasn't something that was uh, wildly popular upon its release last year
1: well no and it's not even 100% wildly popular with me either <laughs> but it's a film that I certainly thought was better than the, rec- the than the reputation it, it seemed to gather suggested and it's one again that deals with race and it deals with race in the south also Mississippi so uh it's it's geographically similar ground to Mudbound but it's the film that came out probably about a year ago Free State of Jones uh, with Matthew McConaughey and Mahershala Ali and uh, Gugu Mbatha-Raw and it's yeah, I thought it was quite a fascinating film I thought some of it was a bit rote and a bit uh, lacking in substance but I also thought there was a really interesting idea of the temporal resonance that these events that took place uh, back in the 19th century still were having on quite a personal level with events in the, the, the 1950s or 60s in America and it, that, having that threaded throughout the film I thought just enlivened it for me a bit more than had it been uh, just in, entirely dry. set in the, yeah. the the civil war era
0: yeah i i didn't hate the free state of jones um i thought i guess i would count it as a fascinating failure um i i thought that framing device of the the court case in the 60s was a little clumsy perhaps and and i also thought it it jumped around its themes a lot um and towards the end it it really um doubles down on the whole idea of a legacy of racism and Mm. how the South dealt with the fallout of the Civil War. Whereas the actual Free State of Jones part of the film is kind of the first, you know, hour and a bit uh, where he establishes this free colony where they do what they want and it it isn't part of the seceded South. And, And that part of the film felt totally different to what I thought was really compelling at the end of the film, which was about... You know, the Civil War generals that were then put into political power and mm. how the Ku Klux Klan was formed. And it was incredibly ambitious in scope and I thought it did illustrate quite well how you could get from the Civil War to the KKK to, um, you know, miscegenation laws and that kind of thing. But I, I almost thought it was trying to take on too much and couldn't quite juggle every part.
1: I would I would partially agree with that. I mean I think I did think it was more successful than that. It it did, did suffer from those problems to a degree, but I thought it was more successful and I thought it was more successful partially as a result of Matthew McConaughey's performance. I thought he was very good. Uh I thought he kind of moved away from what you think of as his, his typical persona. I thought it was nice to see him doing something a bit different. But I think, yeah, I mean, there's a the standout for me in that where um, Mahershala Ali, who obviously since then has gone on to far greater acclaim. That was one of the kind of films that came out around the same time as Moonlight. Coming back again to marvel of his performance in uh, Luke Cage. So it was, it, was, it was these three films all and series all came out around a similar time, which really put him on the map. But he was, he was the standout in that film for me. And I thought, yeah, it's the performances that came through for me. And as i said the uh the the kind of temporal shifting between the two eras i thought worked quite well for me
0: and is that a kind of connective tissue to mudbound
1: uh in as much as um i think mudbound acts as almost a kind of microcosm of american society and particularly american society now and race relations. So it almost acts as a kind of temporal bridge between the 40s and now. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in, in that respect, it's, it's almost performing a similar thing to Free State of Jones. So...
0: There are a couple of suggestions for what you could watch with Mudbound. I think the main thing to take away from this is watch Mudbound. Yeah, Um, (laughs) absolutely. It's it's out on Netflix soon, and like I say, it's in Curzon Cinemas as well. But you could watch it with Free State of Jones, which is on Amazon Prime Video. It is, yep. And you could watch it with To Kill a Mockingbird, which is on Netflix. So those are some double bill suggestions for you. Um, If you watch Mudbound this Friday and you think... It reminds you of another film. Do tweet at the VODPod. Let us know what you think. Um but that is all for this week's episode of The VODPod. Uh thanks for listening in. Um please do tweet about the show, uh review it on
1: iTunes. All I would say is don't at me for liking free state of Jones. Don't at me. <laughs> do,
0: feel free to at. It's um at Ross underscore McLean. Uh we'll tweet his his Twitter handle. Please take it up with him or Tell them what you thought of Housebound,
1: I don't know Yeah, please, yeah, please, I'd love to hear your thoughts on Housebound because it's a film that I think definitely needs to be seen more and uh, Mudbound, definitely see that not least because it's directed by a woman and I personally am trying to do 52 films by women this you year You crossed that a long time ago I crossed it you? a long time ago, I'm, I'm about to hit 100 but you can never watch enough uh,
0: What is the best film you've seen directed by a woman this year?
1: Well, it'd be one that I'd heard about for a number of years, but had never got round to watching, and it is a film called A New Leaf from uh, 1971. Directed by Elaine May. Uh, a name, again, I'd heard of mostly for Big her, on film, Twitter. Mostly for her notoriety for directing Ishtar. Uh, but uh, A New Leaf I just thought was an absolutely wonderful uh, romantic comedy uh, with a, a kind of really kind of dark edge to it yeah definitely recommend it and that is on streaming i believe it's on netflix at least it was when i watched it well there you go
0: i mean another free recommendation for don't say we're not good to you here at the vod pod um thank you to the band tongues for their song religion um why have you not checked out their music yet honestly and uh thank you to sam grover for his jingles um are people singing them to you on the street yet do you know it hasn't received the international fame i was hoping for um but you know maybe sam do you want to make them free to download or something that a dance maybe? remix yeah dan- sam can you do a dance remix um and then we'll get the viral hit it deserves um and thank you ross for being on the show thank you for having me um join us again in a couple of weeks time but until then have courage and be kind